Chapter One, Part One, of the Guns of Bull Run, by Joseph A. Altscheller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Michael Packard of Western Colorado. The Guns of Bull Run, Chapter One, News from Charleston. It would soon be Christmas and Harry Kenton, at his desk at the Pendleton Academy, saw the snow falling heavily outside. The school stood on the skirt of the town, and the forest came down to the edge of the playing field. The great trees, oak and ash and elm, were clothed in white, and they stood out a vast and glittering tracery against the somber sky. The desk was of the old kind, intended for two, and Harry's comrade in it was his cousin Dick Mason, of his own years and size. They would graduate in June, and both were large and powerful for their age. There was a strong family resemblance, and yet a difference. Harry's face was the more sensitive, and at times the blood leapt like quicksilver in his veins. Dick's features indicated a quieter and more stubborn temper. They were equal favorites with teachers and pupils. Dick's eyes followed Harry's, and he, too, looked at the falling snow and the white forest. Both were thinking of Christmas and the holiday season so near at hand. It was a rich section of Kentucky, and they were the sons of prosperous parents. The snow was fitting at such a time, and many joyous hours would be passed before they returned to school. The clouds darkened, and the snow fell faster. A wind rose and drove it against the panes. The boys heard the blast roaring outside, and the comfort of the warm room was heightened by the contrast. Harry's eyes turned reluctantly back to his Tacitus and the customs and manners of the ancient Germans. The curriculum of the Pendleton Academy was simple, like most others at that time. After the primary grades, it consisted chiefly of the classics and mathematics. Harry led in the classics and Dick in the mathematics. Bob Turner, the free-colored man who was janitor at the academy, brought the morning mail, a dozen letters and three or four newspapers, gave it to Dr. Russell, and withdrew on silent feet. The doctor was principal of the Pendleton Academy, and he always presided over the room in which sat the larger boys, nearly fifty in number. His desk and chair were on a low dais, and he sat facing the pupils. He was a large man, with a ruddy face and thick hair as white as the snow that was falling outside. He had been a teacher fifty years, and three generations in Pendleton owed to him most of the learning that is obtained from books. He opened his letters one by one and read them slowly. Harry moved far away into the German forest with old Tacitus. He was proud of his Latin, and he did not mean to lose his place as first in the class. The other boys also were absorbed in their books. It was seldom that all were studious at the same time, but this was one of the rare moments. There was no shuffling of feet and fifty heads were bent over their desks. 
It was a full half hour before Harry looked up from his Tacitus. His first glance was at the window. The snow was driving hard, and the forest had become a white blur. He looked next at the doctor, and he saw that the ruddy face had turned white. The old man was gazing intently at an open letter in his hand. Two or three others had fallen to the floor. He read the letter again, folded it carefully, and put it in his pocket. Then he broke the wrapper on one of the newspapers and rapidly read its columns. The whiteness of his face deepened into pallor. The slight tearing sound caused most of the boys to look up, and they noticed the change in the principal's face. They had never seen him look like that before. It was as if he had received some sudden and deadly stroke. Yet he sat stiffly upright, and there was no sound in the room but the rustling of the newspaper as he turned its pages. Harry became conscious of some strange and subtle influence that had crept into the very air, and his pulse began to leap. The others felt it, too. There was a tense feeling in the room, and they became so still that the soft beat of the snow on the windows could be heard. Not a single eye was turned to a book now. All were intent upon the doctor, who still read the newspaper, his face without a trace of color, and his strong white hands trembling. He folded the paper presently, but still held it in his hand. As he looked up, he became conscious of the silence in the room, and of the concentrated gaze of fifty pairs of eyes bent upon him. A little color returned to his cheeks, and his hands ceased to tremble. He stood up, took the letter from his pocket, and opened it again. Dr. Russell was a striking figure, belonging to a classic type found at its best in the border states. A tall man, he held himself erect, despite his years, and the color continued to flow back into the face, which was shaped in a fine, strong mold. Boys, he said, in a firm, full voice, although it showed emotion, I have received news which I must announce to you. As I tell it, I beg that you will restrain yourselves and make little comment here. Its character is such that you are not likely ever to hear anything of more importance. No one spoke, but a thrill of excitement ran through the room. Harry became conscious that the strange and subtle influence had increased. The pulses in both temples were beating hard. He and Dick leaned forward, their elbows upon the desk, their lips parted a little in attention. You know, continued Dr. Russell, in a full voice that trembled slightly, of the troubles that have risen between the states, north and south, troubles that the best Americans with our own great Henry Clay at the head have striven to avert. You know of the election of Lincoln, and how this beloved state of ours seeking peace voted for neither Lincoln nor Breckinridge, both of whom are its sons. The trembling of his voice increased as he paused again. It was obvious that he was stirred by deep emotion, 
and it communicated itself to the boys. Harry was conscious that the thrill, longer and stronger than before, ran again through the room. I have just received a letter from an old friend in Charleston, continued Dr. Russell in a shaking voice, and he tells me that on the 20th, three days ago, the state of South Carolina seceded from the Union. He also sends me copies of two of the Charleston newspapers of the day following. In both of these papers, all dispatches from the other states are put under the head Foreign News, with the abolitionists of New England pouring abuse upon all who do not agree with them, and the hotheads of South Carolina rushing into violence. God alone knows what will happen to this distracted country that all of us love so well. He turned anew to his correspondence, but Harry saw that he was trembling all over. An excited murmur arose. The boys began to talk about the news, and the principal, his thoughts far away, did not call them to order. I suppose since South Carolina has gone out that the other southern states will do the same, said Harry to his cousin, and that two republics will stand where but one stood before. I don't know that the second result will follow the first, replied Dick Mason. Harry glanced at him. He was conscious of a certain cold tenacity in Dick's voice. He felt that a veil of antagonism had suddenly been drawn between these two, who were the sons of sisters, and who had been close comrades all their lives. His heart swelled suddenly, as if by inspiration. He saw a head long and terrible years. He said no more, but gazed again at the pages of his Tacitus, although the letters only swam before his eyes. The great buzz subsided at last, although there was not one among the boys who was not still thinking of the secession of South Carolina. They had shared in the excitement of the previous year. A few had studied the causes, but most were swayed by propinquity and kinship, which, with youth, are more potent factors than logic. The afternoon passed slowly. Dr. Russell, who always heard the recitations of the seniors in Latin, did not call the class. Harry was so much absorbed in other thoughts that he did not notice the fact. Outside the clouds still gathered, and the soft beat of the snow on the window panes never ceased. The hour of dismissal came at last, and the older boys, putting on their overcoats, went silently out. Harry did not dream that he had passed the doors of Pendleton Academy for the last time as a student. While the seniors were quiet, there was no lack of noise from the younger lads. Snowballs flew, and the ends of red comforters dancing in the wind touched the white world with glowing bits of color. Harry looked at them with a sort of pity. The magnified emotion of youth had suddenly made him feel very old and very responsible. When a snowball struck him under the ear, he paid no attention to it, 
a mark of great abstraction in him. He and his cousin walked gravely on, and left the shouting crowd behind them. Three or four hundred yards further, they came upon the main street of Pendleton, a town of fifteen hundred people, important in its section as a market, and as a financial and political center. It had two banks as solid as stone, and it was the proud boast of its inhabitants that, excepting Louisville and Lexington, its bar was of unequaled talent in the state. Other towns made the same claim, but no matter. Pendleton knew that they were wrong. Lawyers stood very high, especially when they were fluent speakers. It was a singular fact that the two boys, usually full of talk, after the manner of youth, did not speak until they came to the parting of their ways. When Harry, the more emotional of the two, and conscious that the veil of antagonism was still between them, thrust out his hand suddenly and said, Whatever happens, Dick, you and I must not quarrel over it. Let's pledge our word here and now, that being of the same blood, and having grown up together, we will always be friends. The color in the cheeks of the other boy deepened. A slight moisture appeared in his eyes. He was, on the whole, more reserved than Harry, but he too was stirred. He took the outstretched hand and gave it a strong clasp. Always, Harry, he replied. We don't think alike, maybe, about the things that are coming, but you and I can't quarrel. He released the hand quickly because he hated any show of emotion and hurried down a side street to his home. Harry walked on into the heart of the town as he lived farther away on the other side. He soon had plenty of evidence that the news of South Carolina secession had preceded him here. There had been no such stir in Pendleton since they heard of Buena Vista, where fifty of her sons fought and half of them fell. Despite the snow, the streets about the central square were full of people. Many of the men were reading newspapers. It was fifteen miles to the nearest railroad station, and the mail had come in at noon, bringing the first printed accounts of South Carolina's action. In this border state, which was a divided house from first to last, men still guarded their speech. They had grown up together, and they were all blood-kin, near or remote. "'What will it mean?' said Harry to old Judge Kendrick. "'War, perhaps, my son,' replied the old man sadly. "'The violence of New England in speech and the violence of South Carolina in action may start a flood, but Kentucky must keep out of it. I shall raise my voice against the fury of both factions, and thank God our people have never refused to hear me. He spoke in a somewhat rhetorical fashion, natural to time and place. But he was in great earnest. Harry went on, and entered the office of the Pendleton News, the little weekly newspaper which dispensed the news, mostly personal, within a radius of fifty miles. He knew that the news would appear on the following day, and he was anxious to learn what Mr. Gardner, the editor, a friend of his, would have to say in his columns. He walked up the dusty stairway, 
and entered the room where the editor sat amid piles of newspapers. Mr. Gardner was a youngish man, high-colored and with longish hair. He was absorbed so deeply in a copy of the Louisville Journal that he did not hear Harry's step or notice his coming until the boy stood beside him. Then he looked up and said dryly, Too many sparks make a blaze at last. If people keep on quarreling, there's bound to be a fight some time or other. I suppose you've heard that South Carolina has seceded. Dr. Russell announced it in school. Are you telling Mr. Gardner what the news will have to say about it? I don't mind, replied the editor, who was fond of Harry and who liked his alert mind. If it comes to the breach, I'm going with my people. It's hard to tell what's right or wrong, but my ancestors belonged to the South, and so do I. That's just the way I feel, exclaimed Harry vehemently. The editor smiled. But I don't intend to say so in the news tomorrow, he continued. I shall try to pour oil upon the waters, although I won't be able to hide my southern leanings. The colonel, your father, Harry, will not seek to conceal his. No, said Harry, he will not. What's that? The sound of a shot came from the street. The two ran hurriedly down the stairway. Three men were holding a fourth, who struggled with them violently. One had wrenched from his hand a pistol, still smoking at the muzzle. About twenty feet away was another man standing between two, who held him tightly, although he made no effort to release himself. Harry looked at the two captives. They made a striking contrast. The one who fought was a powerful build, and dressed roughly. His whole appearance indicated a primitive human being, and Harry knew immediately that he was one of the mountaineers who came long distances to trade or carouse in Pendleton. The man who faced the mountaineer, standing quietly between those who held him, was young and slender, though tall. His longish black hair was brushed carefully. The natural dead whiteness of his face was accentuated by his black mustache, which turned up at the ends like that of a duelist. He was dressed in black broadcloth, and a long coat buttoned closely around his body, but revealing a full and ruffled shirt bosom as white as snow. His face expressed no emotion, but the mountaineer cursed violently. I can read the story at once, said the editor, shrugging his shoulders. I know the mountaineer. He's Bill Skelly, a rough man prone to reach for the trigger, especially when he's full of bad whiskey as he is now. And the other, Arthur Travers, is no stranger to you. Skelly is for the abolition of slavery. All the mountaineers are. Maybe it's because they have no slaves themselves and hate to the more prosperous and more civilized lowlanders who do have them. Harry, my boy, as you grow older, you'll find that reason and logic seldom control men's lives. Skelly was excited over the news from South Carolina, said Harry, continuing the story, which he too had read as an Indian reads a trail. And he began to drink. He met Travers and cursed the slaveholders. Travers replied with a sneer, 
which the mountaineer could not understand except that it hurt. Skelly snatched out his pistol and fired wildly. Travers drew his and would have fired, although not so wildly. But Friend seized him. Meanwhile, others overpowered Skelly. And Travers is not excited at all, although he watches every movement of his enemy while seeming to be indifferent. You read truly, Harry, said Gardner. It was a fortunate thing for Skelly that he was overpowered. Somehow those two men facing each other seem, in a way, to typify conditions in this part of the country, at least. Harry was now watching Travers, who always aroused his interest. A lawyer, twenty-seven or eight years of age. He had little practice, and seemed to wish little. He had a wonderful reputation for dexterity with cards and the pistol. A native of Pendleton, he was the son of parents from one of the Gulf states, and Harry could never quite feel that he was one of their own Kentucky blood and breed. "'You can release me,' said Travers quietly to the young men who stood on either side of him holding his arms. "'I think the time has come to hunt bigger game than the fool there like Skelly. He is safe from me.' He spoke with a supercilious scorn which impressed Harry, but which he did not wholly admire. Travers seemed to him to have the quiet deadliness of the cobra. There was something about him that repelled. The men released him. He straightened his long black coat, smoothed the full ruffles of his shirt, and walked away as if nothing had happened. Skelly ceased to struggle. The aspect of the crowd, which was largely hostile, sobered him. Steve Allison, the town constable, appeared, and, putting his hand heavily upon the mountaineer's shoulder, said, You come with me, Skelly. But old Judge Kendrick intervened. Let him go, Steve, he said. Send him back to the mountains. But he tried to kill a man, Judge. I know. But extraordinary times demand extraordinary methods. A great and troubled period has come into all our lives. Maybe we're about to face some terrible crisis. Isn't that so? Yes, said the crowd. Then we must not hurry it, or make it worse by sudden action. If Skelly is punished, the mountaineers will say it's political. I appeal to you, Dr. Russell, to sustain me. The white head of the principal showed above the crowd. Judge Kendrick is right, he said. Skelly must be permitted to go. His action, in fact, was due to the strained conditions that have long prevailed among us, and was precipitated by the alarming message that has come today. For the sake of the peace, we must let him go. All right, then, said Allison. But he goes without his pistol. Skelly was put upon his mountain pony, and he rode willingly away, amid the snow and the coming dusk, carrying, despite his release, a bitter heart into the mountains, and a tale that would inflame the jealousy with which Upland regarded Lowland. The crowd dispersed. Gardner returned to his office, and Harry went home. He lived in the best house in or about Pendleton, and his father was its wealthiest citizen, George Kenton having inherited much land in Kentucky, and two or three plantations further south, 
had added to his property by good management. A strong supporter of slavery, actual contact with the institution on a large scale in the Gulf states had not pleased him, and he had sold his property there in reinvesting the money in his native and, as he believed, more solid state. His title of colonel was real. A graduate of West Point, he had fought bravely with Scott in all the battles in the Valley of Mexico, but now retired and a widower. He lived in Pendleton with Harry, his only child. Harry approached the house slowly. He knew that his father was a man of strong temper, and he wondered how he would take the news from Charleston. All the associations of Colonel Kenton were with the extreme southern wing, and his influence upon his son was powerful. But the Pendleton home, standing just beyond the town, gave forth only brightness and welcome. The house itself, large and low, built massively of red brick, stood on the crest of a gentle slope in two acres of ground. The clipped cones of pine trees adorned the slopes and made parallel rows along the brick wall leading to the white portico that formed the entrance to the house. Light shone from a half-dozen windows. It seemed fine and glowing to Harry. His father loved his home, and so did he. The twilight had now darkened into night, and the snow still drove, but the house stood solid and square to the wind and winter, and the flame from its windows made broad bands of red and gold across the snow. Harry went briskly up the walk, and then stood for a few moments in the portico, shaking the snow off his overcoat, and looking back at the town, which lay in a warm cluster in the hollow below. Many lights twinkled there, and it occurred to Harry that they would twinkle later than usual that night. End of chapter 1, part 1 Recorded by Michael Packard of Western Colorado.